2: Follow The Global Story from the BBC, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech – and while I've been recording shows from my home for nearly a year now, I still occasionally get reminded about how things can be different from when I was working in the office. For the most part, things are kind of like this is this is the normal now. However, at the office, there is no chance that my dog will be barking in the background while I record. And so far, I think I've mostly Avoided having him show up on episodes of Tech Stuff, but only because I've edited around it. Keep telling him if he wants to be on a show, he should get his own podcast. But I'm also scared that if he does that, he'll get way more popular than me. You're also not likely to hear other extraneous noises at the office, because there, our studios, our recording studios, are all in rooms that don't have a window to the outside world built into them. Though... You can still occasionally pick up sounds of folks who are chatting in the office outside the studios because, well, at least in the office, we used to be a pretty chatty lot. So if you listen to any of the stuff shows, if you listen very carefully, you might occasionally hear the sounds of people talking outside that studio room. That's because there are desks and stuff just on the other side of those doors. But one noise that has been a particular issue for me while working at home has been the sound of the landscape crew that's working on the courtyard outside the townhouse I live in. They always seem to show up just as I'm getting ready to record. And then I thought, hey, how about I talk about the history of lawnmowers and how they work? That could be a great topic. And turn that frustration I feel into an episode. So let's begin with some etymology, which I am now being told is not the study of bugs, but rather the origin of words. So we think of a lawn, you know, as a grassy area, like a yard, typically covered by turf grass, in fact, and that is somewhat kept in an orderly fashion, partly by cutting the grass fairly low. But where does the word lawn come from? Well, The word derives from a Middle English word of londe, meaning an unwooded field or an open space in the woods, like a glade. Thanks, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. Now, y'all might know that back in my college days, I studied medieval literature, including Old and Middle English texts. And so immediately I thought of our old pal Geoffrey Chaucer, known for composing the Canterbury Tales— though then he thoughtlessly went off and died before he finished writing them. But he also wrote a poem called Parliament of Fowls that mentions a londe, which, hey, that poem also references Valentine's Day later on, and since we just had Valentine's Day, this episode is now timely. So the whole poem is far too long for me to read. It's like 700 lines long. But I will give you the little bit of it that's about the londe. And the passage goes like this. And in a londe upon a hilde of Flores was set this noble goddess nature, of branches were her hollis and her bors, he wrought after her craft and her measure. Now, this passage goes on a bit longer, but honestly, I would just be indulging in my own love of medieval English lit, so I'm going to cut it off there. What that passage means in modern English is. And in an opening in the woods, on a hill covered with flowers, sat the goddess Nature. Her home was made of branches and arranged according to her art. So it's a pretty little passage. And here, Londa refers to something you might encounter if you were walking through the countryside, through the wooded forests of old England or old France. And then at one point you encounter an opening in the forest, where there aren't any trees. So how did it come to mean the word lawn that we use today? Well, to understand that, we have to talk about war. Yes, just as many a homeowner has suspected, lawn care and warfare go hand in hand. Okay, so you got your big medieval bigwig types, you know. You got your kings and your lords and your earls and whatnot, and... Occasionally, these types would lead large groups of warriors to conquer other medieval bigwig types. Something like a, hey, those guys over there got it pretty good, so why don't we go over there and take their stuff and make it our stuff? And so the world turns upon such thoughts. But it's not enough to conquer the people who live on the other side of the hills or river or ocean or whatever, you gotta hold on to the land that you've claimed, right? And that means creating fortifications, preferably in places where you can get a pretty good look at your surroundings to make sure no other medieval bigwigs get the same bright idea you got, and then they come to take your stuff And it used to be someone else's stuff, because, you know, there's always a bigger fish, as it were. So you build up your forts, or your castles, as it were, to protect your assets. Your castles are your defense system, where you can pull back if necessary if enemies come to call. But you can't really be on the lookout for the next bully if you can't see the armies for the trees, right? And so you gets to chopping. You chop, chop, chop all those trees down around your fortifications so that you can see folks from a long way off if they're approaching, and you can prepare if there's an imminent attack. It also helps if, you know, you don't leave trees around for people to cut down and turn into stuff like battering rams. So there's that element as well. So rather than wooded fields, you have grassy ones. And this is the origin of the lawn. Though back in those days, the lawns weren't exactly, you know, pristine. So to maintain the lawns, you'd either have livestock go out to the fields to graze, thus cutting back the grass by eating it, as well as fertilizing the land on occasion, you know, when nature called. Or you could have laborers go out to the fields with hand tools like scythes and sickles to cut back the grass manually so that it wasn't too high. A sickle is a handheld tool that has a handle, typically made out of wood. And on the business end, you've got a curved blade sticking out from the handle, making kind of like a, uh, uh, almost like a half moon, you know, sort of crescent shaped. And the blade is also typically at an angle relative to the handle, sort of how a razor has an angle to it for the purposes of shaving. A scythe is similar, but it's much larger. It's a two-handed tool, uh, the Grim Reaper carries a scythe. And cutting with either a sickle or a scythe involves making horizontal passes, typically at the base of the grass. And you cut in an arc from one side to the other in big arcing swings, so semicircular swings. And those swings only go in one direction. The blade is, is sharpened on the inside curve, not the outside curve. And you're typically going uh, right to left, because the handle for the forward hand on a scythe is meant to be held with the right hand. The left hand is meant to hold the scythe further back on the the handle. So in other words, this is yet another right-handed tool. Scything can actually be pretty efficient. There are actually some great videos on YouTube of people who have really gotten skilled with scything, And they can make short work of an overgrown lawn. Like, they can cut that stuff down quickly. I I suggest you check it out. It's just neat to watch. And the angle of the blade determines how short the scythe will cut the grass. Uh, Using a scythe with a good blade angle, a skilled wielder can cut the grass very low. And pretty efficiently, too. And you would have the bottom part of the blade actually making contact with the ground as you swing the scythe from right to left. They also tend to have to rake up the yard afterward to gather up all the trimmings. We're usually looking at fields that have, you know, grass that's quite high, like maybe a foot high or maybe taller. So you need to have something to to rake up all the the clippings that you've left behind. I've seen a lot of videos of folks using scythes in order to cut back on, you know, relying on fossil fuels and to make use of the trimmings in various ways, from compost to making hay while the sun shines. In some videos, I've seen folks use scythes more effectively than someone who is using a mechanical push mower or a weed whacker. Though, uh, power mowers do tend to be more efficient than a scythe. So a push mower, like a mechanical one where there's no motor, it's just from human power, that versus a scythe, you might actually see someone be more effective with the scythe than with the push mower. Uh, Weed Whacker, same thing. Uh, The push mower that has a motor on it, those tend to win out in the end. So it really does start to make you wonder, however, why the heck did anyone think to invent the mechanical lawnmower in the first place? If a scythe can be as efficient Why would anyone ever think about making a mechanical invention that does effectively the same sort of thing? The first lawnmowers were purely mechanical, relying on gears and blades that were mounted on a drum-like cylinder. And if those aren't more efficient than a scythe, why would you bother? And the answer is, drumroll please, vanity. See, while in the medieval era, soldiers wanted to get a good view of what might be coming at them throughout Europe, particularly in France and England, the strategic usefulness of castles gradually declined in the Middle Ages, largely because of advancements in artillery. Cannons could make very short work of castle walls. And so warfare began to change, and castles weren't part of that. But you still had all these hoity-toity types who liked the idea of a well-maintained lawn. Again, mostly in France and England. That's really where this idea took hold. And this was definitely an issue of vanity, particularly when it came to showing off your prestige. Lawns are not natural environments. When you get down to it, they can be environmentally unfriendly. They represent a much more limited biome than a natural grassy or wooded area, It's an artificial construct. It's really an example of humans cutting back nature to suit our own aesthetics. And really, it was only the hoity-toity types doing this, because maintaining a lawn was a lot of work. Not that the hoity-toity types were the ones doing the work, mind you, but they were the ones who could afford livestock or laborers who would trim back stuff for them. So from manor houses to inhabited castles, you had the practice of maintaining these large, grassy areas. Now, some of that sensibility would also find its way over to the New World, where it really took hold. Now, the grasses in the New World were different than those found in Europe, Uh, but when settlers came to North America, they brought with them livestock, and apparently the livestock really liked the grass in America, so much so that they ding-dang-durn ate it all. So, to keep the livestock from starving, the colonists were importing grass seeds from Europe and North Africa, including grasses that, if you were to go by their names, sound like they come from America. Kentucky bluegrass, I'm looking at you. You ain't from Kentucky. Thomas Jefferson was said to have taken up the goal of creating a manicured lawn at Monticello after he visited France. And George Washington had a similar desire to turn his estate of Mount Vernon into a mirror of European standards. And certainly, the idea of a well-kept lawn managed to really take hold in America, becoming something of an obsession, really, which we'll cover a little bit later in this episode. And certain sports definitely helped things along, for which we can largely thank the Scots, Scottish sports like golf and lawn bowling were brought over by Scottish immigrants to America, and they became popular pastimes for those who had the leisure to pursue such things. But to play lawn games, you got to cut the grass. Otherwise, you're going to spend more time trying to find the game equipment than you get to play with the darn things. Now, we're going to come back to the evolution of the lawn, particularly in America, in just a little bit, as that history ties into a lot of other interesting stuff and includes some heavy-duty connections to other elements of American society, in addition to feeding an entire industry dedicated to lawn care and maintenance. But let's get back to our early history of lawn mowers. Okay, so by the 19th century, lawns were the rage in England, France, and starting to be in America. But as I said, unless you had livestock or the cash to pay laborers, you probably couldn't maintain a lawn on your own. You certainly couldn't do so to the immaculate standards of the aristocracy. The wealthy would spend a lot to get that perfect lawn, even going so far as to hire people to use handheld shears to cut grass down quite low and to avoid the patterns that you would see if you used scythes, because cutting grass in those arc swings would leave behind patterns in the grass, and that was considered uh, aesthetically unpleasing, and then we come to an Englishman named Edwin Beard Budding. Born in Stroud, Gloucestershire in 1795, Budding started off with some strikes against him. His parents were unmarried, his father a farmer, and in England that put him at a fairly low social standing. Class in England was a very important concept. Still can be, well, over there, you had know, the whole uh, working class versus posh and all that sort of stuff. So he started off in carpentry, but he switched over to working at iron foundries. Uh, The Industrial Revolution was well underway in England at this point, and the demand for iron tools and machinery was very high. And through experience, Budding built up an understanding of engineering and problem solving. He would end up inventing several things or making his own version of some existing machines, but obviously the one we want to really look at is the lawnmower, Budding got the idea for the lawnmower when he saw a device used by textile mills to trim back the fibers that stick out from the surface of cloth, also known as the nap of a cloth. And with some textiles, the goal is to fluff the nap out. You use little combs or or prickly flowers even to pull some of those threads out, and then you comb it a certain way, which can make the cloth softer to the touch and better at doing stuff like trapping heat. But sometimes you just wanted a very smooth piece of cloth, something that wouldn't get caught easily on rough surfaces. So for example, you might want a carpet that could withstand more use as long as it didn't, you know, catch on shoes and stuff. So you would want to shear the nap. You'd want to cut that nap close to the cloth. And in earlier days, this job was done by skilled tradespeople who had used giant sets of shears. I mean... These things were massive in order to cut the nap off the surface of the cloth as efficiently as possible. But by Budding's time, some genius whose name is lost to history came up with the notion of building a mechanical device that has blades arranged around a drum or cylinder in a type of helix shape. The drum or cylinder rotates, and by running the surface of the cloth near this helix of blades, the blades could trim back the nap on the surface of the cloth. Add in some rollers and some other elements to pull the cloth along, and you've got yourself a machine that can trim the nap back on cloth evenly, consistently, and efficiently. Aha, said Budding, what if I took that same basic idea and flipped it around a bit so you could trim back grass with rotating blades along a cylinder? And in 1830, that's just what he did, securing a patent, number 6081 in fact, for his invention. I'll explain more about it after this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Budding saw an opportunity to create a device that could consistently and reliably cut grass a specific length. So in other words, you could adjust how tall the grass would be and without leaving those marks behind that you would get if you were to cut grass with scythes and such. Also, the lawnmower wouldn't poop on the lawn, unlike livestock. It would be particularly handy for parks and sporting grounds, where the well-to-do could gather for their leisure time and look for something, you know, orderly and neat, which very much fit in with the sensibilities of the elite of 19th century Britain. So Edwin Beard Budding built a wheeled machine out of wrought and cast iron. It had a pair of wheels. It also had a pair of rollers and a forward roller and a back roller. Uh, as well as the blade-mounted cylinder that did the actual cutting. So imagine you've got a mechanical device that has a small roller in the front. This is the thing that can be adjusted so you can control how close to the ground you're cutting the grass. Behind that roller, you've got your horizontal cylinder that's got the curved blades arranged in a helix around that rotatable cylinder. So it rotates along the horizontal axis is what I'm saying. To either side of that are the wheels of the lawnmower that provides stability, allows you to actually aim it and push it along the ground. And then in the rear, you have a big roller. It kind of looks like a more narrow and slightly smaller version of a steamroller, if that helps you imagine this. Uh, Budding's design also incorporated a tray to catch grass clippings. The tray was in the front because the way this machine worked, it would propel the clippings out, shooting them out toward the front of the machine. Uh, that way you wouldn't have to follow behind the, the lawnmower with a rake or something like that to, to rake up the clippings. And it was that rear roller, the, the big steamroller type thing in the back that connected to the bladed cylinder through a gear drive. That's where you've got a series of gears that fit together to transfer the rotational motion of the roller that's uh, pressed against the ground. So as you push the lawnmower forward, the roller rolls because it's making contact with the ground and it transfers that rotational motion to the cylinder, or the drum if you prefer, that's got the blades on it. And all of this was made out of iron. Now, this meant the person who was pushing the mower had to use a pretty good amount of force because you weren't just pushing hard enough to move the mower itself, which being made out of iron was pretty darn heavy, but also to power that drivetrain of gears that would, you know, transmit the rotation to the cylinder. And each step of that process, each gear connection means that you're losing a little bit of the amount of energy you're giving to the system to stuff like friction, so it means you have to push even harder to get things going. But still, Budding showed that the same general principle that worked for cutting back the nap on cloth could in fact be used to cut grass. He patented his design in 1830, and in that patent, Budding said his invention represented, quote, a new combination and application of machinery for the purpose of cropping or shearing the vegetable surfaces of lawns, grass plats, and pleasure grounds. Country gentlemen may find in using my machine themselves an amusing, useful, and healthy exercise. End quote. It's interesting to note that a lot of the basic designs introduced by Budding would stick around throughout the ages with mechanical push mowers. And the ones that we have today have at least some resemblance to the one that Budding was making back in the mid-19th century. Now, they, the new ones are, are more elegant in design, and they're made of much lighter materials, but the general principle behind the operation remains pretty much the same. Budding formed a partnership with an engineer named John Farabee, who owned a company called Phoenix Ironworks. Farabee had the manufacturing rights to produce Budding's design and fronted the costs to develop the prototype, and one of the earliest lawnmowers that the pair produced went to the London Zoo, and another one became the property of Oxford University. By 1832, word had already spread that Budding's machine could create great results, and demand was soon outpacing Farabee's capacity to produce lawnmowers— And Farabee then began to license the design to other engineers, to other ironworks owners, including Ransoms of Ipswich, a company that was already in the business of producing plows for farmers. They advertised the new lawnmower invention, saying, quote, the machine is so easy to manage that persons unpracticed in the art of mowing may cut the grass on lawns and bowling greens with ease, end quote. In other words, they were kind of positioning this as something of a leisure activity for uh for the upper class that you know mowing the lawn with a scythe that was a low class thing to do that was for laborers you wouldn't see people of the upper classes do that it was beneath their station but mowing with this exotic machine that was something befitting a person of high station and It was, as a matter of fact, pretty simple to operate these things. You just grabbed the handle of the mower and you pushed it forward, kind of like a cart. You would exert a little bit of a downward push as you did so. It took far less skill than scything did, and by framing the activity of mowing a lawn as a means of taking exercise and being out in nature, the companies were slowly shifting the perception of caring for a lawn in general, and this would also help later on as the lawnmower would be marketed toward the middle class when the prices would eventually come down. Now, when I say the demand was outstripping supply— we have to remember that manufacturing in the 1830s wasn't nearly as efficient as it would be a century later. So, I don't want to give you the impression that the lawnmower became the must-have Christmas gift of 1832 or something. When Budding passed away in 1846 because of a stroke, the lawnmower was a successful invention, but it was not yet a household item. So, It wasn't like Budding had become a millionaire. In fact, he he died before really seeing his invention get adopted around England, France, and America. By the 1860s, Farabee's ironworks had produced around 5,000 lawnmowers, and that included a small range of designs, which mainly had to do with the width of the lawnmower. A wider lawnmower can obviously cut a wider strip of grass, which means you don't have to do as many passes on a lawn or a field in order to complete a job. But it also means that the lawnmower gets heavier. Uh, Some of the designs incorporated a second handle on the lawnmower. This one would be toward the front of the machine, which meant you could actually pull it along behind you instead of pushing it in front of you. One design I saw had the handle on a hinge, so you could swing the handle. So you could swing it toward the rear of the machine and make it a push mower, or you could swing it to the front of the machine and make it a pull mower. Budding's design inspired others to make their own adjustments. In 1842, Alexander Shanks, an inventor from Scotland, made a version of the lawnmower that could be hitched to a horse or pony, which allowed him to make even larger lawnmowers that would be far too heavy for a person to push or pull on their own. Uh, To prevent the horses from damaging the grass, let's say that you were cutting the grass on a golf course, something that was very common in Scotland, or tennis courts, well, they would put little leather shoes on the horse's hooves so the horse would be wearing booties in order to mow the lawn. In the 1850s, inventor Thomas Green made some adjustments of his own to the lawnmower design, and one simple tweak was that he added a rake to help lift grass blades up a little bit for cutting, so that way you didn't end up with any missed bits. But in the late 1850s, he made a much more substantial change. He created a chain drive for the mower's blades instead of the gear drive that Budding had created. And by removing the need for so many cast iron gears and replacing them with a chain, he made the lawnmower's design simpler and, importantly, lighter. It was also apparently less noisy, as Green called his lawnmower the Silens Messor for silent running. By this time, 30 years after the invention of the lawnmower, word had reached America. And in 1868, an inventor from Connecticut named Amariah Hills received a patent for improvements to Budding's lawnmower design, which included changing out a cylinder covered in blades to an open spiral cutter. So just imagine a helix of blades, but you no longer have them mounted on a cylinder. It's almost like it's just two blades in it that that mount to wheels on either side that can turn. Uh, He also allowed more fine tuning for the cutting height and changed how the handle attached to the frame of the mower, and his design would go on to become a very popular mower in the northeastern United States, sometimes called an Archimedean mower because the blades resembled the classic Archimedean screw. Many of these machines saw use in parks and for maintaining stuff like golf courses and tennis courts and the like, but over in America, they would also be sought after because of a few other big factors, and one is the growth of the suburbs. So after the Civil War in America, and as the U.S. was having its own boom in industry, cities were becoming more industrialized in general, and many people, at least many you know wealthy people, the people who could afford it, moved out of the cities and settled in surrounding areas near the cities, forming the suburbs. And like the French and English aristocracy a century earlier, many of them saw a well-maintained lawn as something of a status symbol. So there was a general movement toward cutting lawns, which must have pleased Amariah Hill as it represented a demand for those Archimedean mowers And in 1870, Frank J. Scott's The Art of Beautifying Suburban Home Grounds of Small Extent hit the presses. This book, which is 618 pages in length, if we don't include all the advertisements at the end of the book, it goes to what I can only describe as excruciating detail regarding how to make your lawn look absolutely magnificent. And further, you are a monster if you don't do it. You can read the whole thing over on the Smithsonian Library's website if you would like. If you want to skip to the juicy stuff, go to page 107, chapter 13, The Lawn. The chapter opens up with a couple of references to poetry, followed by this passage. Quote, A smooth, closely shaven surface of grass is by far the most essential element of beauty on the grounds of a suburban home. End quote. Boom, mic drop. You don't mow your grass, you are an affront to beauty. Now, I'm being a little, you know, facetious here, but Scott was arguing that In an age in which companies were laying down train tracks or streetcar lines, more people from far and wide were passing through different neighborhoods and then judging those neighborhoods based on their aesthetic beauty, or lack thereof. And isn't it more American to be proud of your community and to show it off with distinction? So rich suburbanites ate that stuff up, man. And so lawn care started to be a big business. It was boosted more with related inventions, such as Joseph Lesler's lawn sprinkler, which could attach to a garden hose. Lawns need a good deal of water to remain healthy. We're going to touch on that again in a bit. And this was a way where you could water your lawn without having to do a lot of backbreaking work in the process. And again, the concept of lawn care being connected to exercise and being out of doors was a big part of all this, too. So... While America's obsession with lawn care began to take root, so to speak, we had other stuff going on at the same time. Sometime around 1890 or so, inventors began to incorporate the next logical element for lawnmowers—steam engines. Yes, steam-powered lawnmowers were a thing, briefly. And why not? Steam engines had already been used for trains for decades— So why not strap a big old boiler to a mechanical lawnmower and make the boiling water do all the work? So here's how these things worked in general. You had your boiler, which as the name suggests, is the container holding the water that gets boiled off to produce steam. The boiler is pressurized, so the steam can't just escape. It has to go through a specific route. And typically you would have a valve that would allow steam to pass through under really incredible pressure. So a furnace heats the boiler up, the water starts to boil off, and the steam builds up and passes through valves to a cylinder that has a piston in it. The steam forces the piston down the length of the cylinder until the piston passes an exhaust valve, whereupon the steam escapes the cylinder, the piston returns to its starting position, and the whole thing can happen again. Attaching mechanical elements to the piston via a piston rod allows you to transfer that mechanical motion to other components, such as the wheels and the cutting blades of a lawnmower. And bang, now you don't have to push it yourself or hitch it to a horse or something. You just got to fill up the boiler from time to time. You got to keep that furnace going and keep it really hot. And you know, you just got to not explode, which is something that can happen if pressure builds up in a boiler and the steam has nowhere to go. But hey, a boiler explosion is a small price to pay for a well-manicured lawn, right? Okay, I'm clearly getting snarky again, but these lawnmowers did work, and I've seen some that look like the result you would get if you crossed a locomotive with a mechanical push mower along with a riding lawnmower. You would sit in front of the boiler which would be mounted at the rear of the lawnmower, and you would use controls to steer yourself as you rode along and moved down a lawn or field, and the steam engine provides all the oomph to the wheels and the blades. It's neat, if a little intimidating. These things were huge, and they had to be, because if you're using steam, you need to have a big boiler to hold enough water so that you got the the oomph for your, your engine. These clearly were not intended for the average homeowner or even the upper middle class or lower upper class homeowners. These were more for, you know, larger, more regularly level areas. They didn't do well if there were hills or anything like that. So these were more frequently used for something like a a flat landscaped park or, you know, a sporting area like a golf course or maybe a tennis court. They also didn't stick around for very long, and when we come back, I'll talk about the development of the gas-powered lawnmower, which would take the steam out of its predecessor for a couple of good reasons, but first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
0: Before I get into more modern mowers... I should mention another inventor, this one named John Albert Burr. He made changes to the classic cylindrical lawnmower design so that the gears wouldn't easily get gummed up with lawn clippings. Essentially, he figured out, hey, if we cover these gears up so that the lawn clippings can't get in the gearworks, then you're not going to have as many jams as you try and mow your lawn. He also created a mower that would allow landscapers to mow more closely to the edge of walls and buildings to get a, a neater cut. Also around this time, improvements in manufacturing meant that companies could mass produce lawn mowers, which also meant the costs of production dropped, and that meant companies could drop the prices of those machines. And that meant more people were able to afford lawn mowers. And in America in particular, That meant booming business, as the idea that a well-kept lawn was an important component of being seen as an upstanding member of society had really taken hold here. So this combination of elements led to a lot more people buying lawnmowers. And when I say that, remember, I'm still talking about the mechanical push-mower-style devices. Well, the steam-powered lawnmowers appeared on the scene in the 1890s, but by 1902, Ransoms, the company I mentioned much earlier in this episode is one of the first to license Budding's lawnmower design for production, well, they created the first lawnmower that used an internal combustion engine for power. This was a ride-on mower, and it was a big one, so this was not a push mower, this, this was a a gigantic monstrosity. In fact, the images I've seen of this thing make it look like there's a gentleman in a jacket and tweed hat who is taking a printing press out for a ride or something. It's a machine with big, heavy chains, enormous rollers, a large container in front to catch clippings, and whirling blades of destruction underneath. It looks pretty awesome, I think, and almost unreal. It certainly isn't what I think of when someone says lawn mower to me. The internal combustion engine was the death knell for steam-powered lawnmowers. While Ransom's ride-on mower was huge, the switch to an internal combustion engine would lead to smaller lawnmower designs. And you didn't need an enormous boiler like you would with a steam-powered one, nor did you have to stoke some sort of furnace to keep things going. You just needed some petrol in the fuel tank, now, I've talked about how internal combustion engines work in other episodes, so I'm not going to go into all that detail here, but I will say that the early versions of the motor powered lawn mowers, really in other forms, seem to be based on that cylindrical helix design along the horizontal axis, the same sort of design that Budding had proposed way back in 1830. So these were not the rotary mowers that we would see much later, not yet. But the advances in internal combustion engines, which would both make the mowers get smaller and more powerful, as various engineers made improvements to the engines, that eventually did lead to the design of a different kind of lawnmower. So instead of that horizontal axis cylindrical approach in which the blades would rotate around that horizontal axis, the internal combustion engine allowed for a lawnmower with a vertical axle upon which you would... Fix a horizontal blade. So the rotating vertical axle would rotate this horizontal blade close to the ground in a really fast circle, and you've got your rotary lawnmower. A lot of different engineers and companies experimented with creating rotary lawnmowers for a few decades actually, but most of them weren't really that successful because the engines being used just weren't up to turning something that way in an efficient manner. So you couldn't cut very well with them. But by the 1950s, it had become a viable approach to lawnmower design. And now we're going to get into some interesting and some upsetting parts of history. Okay, so we laid out how the aristocracy used lawns as a way to show off their wealth and their sensibilities. And we talked about how those ideas filtered from France and England to America, and how Frank Scott promoted them with his authoritative approach on appealing to wealthy suburban families. So let's talk about some big issues in the United States that made lawns a sort of symbol of the haves versus the have-nots. And this is also going to have a lot to do about racial discrimination. Back in 1870, when Scott's book hit the scene, his target demographic was the white suburban homeowner. The suburbs were where you'd typically find the upper middle class or maybe the lower upper classes. And these communities were predominantly white. And frequently, that was actually a selling point that real estate agents would market to potential clients. It was, without a doubt, a racist perspective. The idea that a community is preferable because there are no people of color living there. That's just gross. All right, so flash forward to the 1940s. The United States enters World War II and sends more than 16 million Americans to serve during the war. More than 400,000 of those Americans died in action, and another 670,000 were wounded, At the time, racial segregation was still very much in practice, even in the military. And the number of black people serving in the U.S. military actually represented a lower percentage than the demographics of black people uh, relative to the general U.S. population at the time. But there were still thousands of black soldiers and volunteers who were active in the theater of war, including soldiers on the front lines. Back home, the United States government passed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, better known as the GI Bill. The purpose of the bill was to create a support system for soldiers returning home. That included important infrastructure, like the construction of hospitals, but it also included the chance to go to college tuition-free, up to $500, which, hey, how about those college tuition increases, y'all? They could also secure low-interest mortgage offers on homes through banks because the government was backing those loans. So these soldiers, some of whom had been overseas for years, were to be given some assistance upon returning home to make up for the fact that they had to leave their lives, their loved ones, and their livelihoods all behind. And that bill meant that millions of returning soldiers would be able to buy a home for the first time in the suburbs and follow the American dream of a white picket fence and a well-manicured lawn. That is, they could do it if they were white. While the bill ostensibly offered benefits to all returning veterans, regardless of race or gender, in practice, it was far more common to see those benefits go to white male veterans. And black veterans also frequently found it really hard to secure a loan from a bank for a mortgage, even with the guaranteed government backing that came from the GI Bill. And so the suburban home, and along with it, the American lawn, became sort of an extended marker for segregation and racial discrimination. Now, did this mean that all white people who enjoyed maintaining their lawn were racist for doing so? No, of course not, Rather, they were privileged in that they had more opportunities to secure a home in the suburbs and a lawn to maintain than people of color had. And that's also to point out that there were Black people moving into suburbs and having lawns, but from a systematic point of view, they were doing so by overcoming obstacles that their white neighbors just didn't necessarily face. The post-World War II era saw an economic boom. And along with developments like color printing, radio, television, we also saw a boom in advertising. And you better believe companies that were making lawn care products and machinery, including lawnmowers, were leaning heavily on promoting the idea that a neat, orderly lawn reflects well on homeowners, and that the products they were selling would help you achieve that dream of homogenous perfection— That plays a part in it, too. The U.S. in the 1950s was an era of conformity. There was an intense pressure to create the ideal of perfection. Honestly, when we look at stuff like how people will manufacture these perfect photos for their social media platforms like their Instagram, to me, it feels like it's that same mentality coming back into play. Sure, your life might be a shambles, but dang it, your lawn looks nice. And so to the outside world you're just fine. Now, maybe I'm getting a bit too off-target here. Let's get back to lawnmowers. So by the 1950s, we started seeing the rotary-style lawnmowers that ran on gas hitting the market. This is where we get that iconic starter cord, the pull cord that can foil us as we try to get that little bit of fuel that's been pumped into the engine to catch on before giving that that cord a, a big rip or three to try and get the engine to start. And I don't think I've ever talked about how a pull start or rope start engine works. So let's just cover that super quickly, shall we? All right. So inside the lawnmower, you've got a reel and you've got a cord wound around that reel. The end of that cord is attached to a handle. That's on the outside of the lawnmower. That's the part that you grip and pull. Attached to the reel inside the lawnmower is a spring so pulling the cord will cause the spring to extend and it wants to contract so that's the force you're feeling the tension you feel is the spring trying to contract again so when you let go of the the cord it goes back into the you know the lawnmower because that spring is compressing well also attached to the reel is the clutch of the engine and as the reel turns it transmits rotational energy to the crankshaft if the crankshaft turns Quickly enough, a pair of magnets connected to a flywheel begin to move outward due to centrifugal force, and once they extend far enough, the magnets affect the ignition module so that it generates a spark, and that sets off the combustion in the engine's cylinders. And once that gets going, the engine can take over from there. It can continue that cycle of sparking the spark plugs, assuming that there's fuel left in the tank to ignite due to those sparks. So a gas-powered rotary lawnmower typically uses the engine to provide power to the blade, of course, but also frequently to at least two wheels to make it a little easier to push around. They require less physical effort to use than the mechanical lawnmowers that have been around for more than a century, but they also require fuel, and they also give off emissions through the burning of that fuel. Now, some folks have been calling out lawns more recently for lots of different reasons, including environmental and socioeconomic concerns. A lot of water is used on lawns, which often can be seen as as very wasteful, And there's always stories about communities that have water restrictions due to drought. And some jerk face is using precious water to water their lawn because for some reason that's more important than everyone else having access to water. Uh, Some folks use stuff like herbicides and pesticides in order to maintain their lawns, which can sometimes cause chemical runoff that can get washed out and joined the water cycle. That's bad news. And of course, there's the fact that lawns are not natural ecosystems. They represent a less biologically useful surface. And then the fact that the very concept of lawns dates back to this aristocratic notion of showing off your wealth. So might we one day see a world in which the manicured lawn is really an oddity and people move to maybe a more natural and thus disorderly approach? I don't know. But I sure hope so because then my HOA won't be on my case if I don't get to the grass cutting on time. Okay, well, I guess I need to go mow the lawn, so let's wrap this episode up. If you guys have suggestions for topics I can cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me. The best way to do so is on Twitter. The handle is Tech Stuff, H-S-W. And I'll talk to you again really soon.
1: at work.